Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Kari Arande Polk about his book, Contagions of Empire, Scientific Racism, Sexuality, and Black Military Workers Abroad, 1898-1948, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Dr. Polk is an Associate Professor of Black Studies and Sexuality, Women, and Gender Studies at Amherst College. Contagions of Empire examines how the shifting views of black military workers through the first half of the 20th century as the U.S. increased its global empire in warfare. At once viewed as both contagious and immune, black workers attempted to navigate the complex pathways that were left open in the military, even as they were seen as simultaneously integral and threatening to both the U.S. military and nation state. Dr. Polk's work shows not just how scientific racism developed during this period and how U.S. military U.S. militarism expanded, but how the black community responded at each step. Dr. Polk, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, uh, Derek. It's great to be here. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this topic and why you decided to study it? Sure. Uh, well, one of the things I can say is... This story is connected to my own family history in the sense that uh, my father and uh, both of my grandfathers served in the U.S. military. My grandfather served uh, in the Army and my father served in the Air Force. I grew up in an African-American military family. Uh, We were stationed uh, in England uh, and Okinawa, Japan. And when I started graduate school, at NYU, uh, it was also September 11th. And so at that time, there were many robust critiques of the American military and American militarism in particular. And I thought that these critiques were important, but I also felt that there was something uh, lacking in uh, in the awareness of the actual conditions of of service uh, and thinking about the relationship between service and servitude uh, and racism was one of the ways I began to uh, refocus this study. Uh, and I also wanted to figure out how to move beyond a hagiographic narrative of, of Black enlistment. Uh, for many reasons and important reasons, many historians have felt the, the need of, of discussing the Black soldier as a hero, um, as a way of combating the negative portrayals uh, that have historically uh, attended to uh, the discussion of black military service um, um, in, 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 in histories. Uh, I wanted to move away from, let's say, uh, figures such as uh, the Tuskegee Airmen and look at other actors, uh, uh, some of them common, some of them exceptional, in order to try to find a different story of African-American military service in 
the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, I think one of the best ways sort of coming to a project uh, that I find is, you know, sort of having that personal connection. Um, I think a lot of people sort of think that historians are just like, okay, I'm just going to throw a dart at a wall and, you know, pick this. You know, scholars are just going to randomly pick something. And it's like, no, a lot of times we have a sort of connection to this topic. Exactly. And I know that I, in many ways, I probably moved away from this topic for for many years uh, in, in graduate school. Uh, and that is probably just a symptom of being a military brat and and wanting to get as far away from the military as possible. Or I would say incorrectly believing that anything there was to know about Black people in the military, I knew it because I lived it. And what happened uh, after graduate school and when I began to teach courses on military history at Amherst, I began to discover so much of what I didn't know and things that I wasn't sure my parents knew. And I became fascinated and reinvigorated to look at aspects of this history that in many ways I feel have been left out of the uh, the modern narrative of black military service. Um, and, and I, in many ways, I mean this in the best possible way, but when you see public discussions of black military memory. There is a way in which we can talk about the Civil War, and then we sort of move quickly to World War I. Uh, sometimes we might even pass World War, I, World War I and go to World War II. And I, in graduate school, I kind of moved away from, uh, I, I, I sort of looked at that, that history uh, in the same light, and it wasn't until I stopped to reflect upon the uh, Spanish-Cuban-American War of 1898 that I found uh, a story that, at least uh, for for my own, uh, uh, for I guess my own uh, um, sense of, of 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 being, I felt that there was a story that had not been told, and I wanted to to spend more time uh, on uh, that that eighteen ninety eight war because I thought that it was important for the construction of African American identity and the discussion of black military service abroad. And so in terms of your work, you know, uh, a couple of concepts are sort of integral to, you know, your work here, one of which is in the title of Contagions of Empire. And so how do you define and use terms like immunity and contagion in your work? Because as you show, there's a multitude of meanings across time for these words. Right. The first thing I would say is that these terms weren't terms that I went into the book uh, looking to uh, to prove, and they were terms that came out of of the research in many ways out of the uh, the archive that for me uh, they were were begging to uh, to be considered and theorized. So I'll start with immunity because that was the term that for me uh, has uh, uh, many, many meanings, uh, which I try to pin down uh, throughout uh, the text. So immunity, I think when we normally think about immunity, we think about, let's say, uh, biological immunity. Uh, we think about, you know, that, that you might receive from ch- uh, childhood bouts of 
chicken pox. Um, or we think about the kinds of immunities that police officers uh, receive or foreign dignitaries might receive. Um, uh, and I found immunity uh, a term that was really important uh, for African-Americans in the mid to late 19th century, uh, specifically in terms of thinking about uh, the use of the term immunity in the 14th Amendment, uh, where the first sentence, uh, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. And that was a term that I began to see pop up uh, in African-American journalism uh, and letters to editors of black newspapers, uh, especially at the end of the 19th century. And it was a term that became a synonym for rights and privileges of citizenship. Now, that term, I think, uh, it changed its meaning uh, a bit when we look at the rationale for enlisting uh, African-American men and women during the Spanish-Cuban-American War. There was a sense uh, that that yellow fever and other tropical diseases uh, would, uh, would be problematic for American troops uh, in Cuba. And there was a belief that, uh, that was popular during slavery that African-Americans, and specifically African-American women, were resistant or immune to yellow fever. Uh, so this term uh, was uh, became used as as a way to employ African American soldiers uh, and uh, and African American women as nurses. Uh, and the black men were enlisted in immune regiments. Uh, and again, this is the idea of the belief that black people are still immune to yellow fever. And black women were enlisted as immune nurses. Uh, and so I saw both of these uses of immunity uh, uh, come uh, uh, together uh, in uh, the first use of African-American men and women uh, for military service abroad uh, uh, at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And I began to see that the way in which African-American leaders used this term was a term that, that emphasized the political notions of the term. Uh, there, are also, there are moments where people talk about the notion of what kind of political immunity will re we receive uh, based upon the service of, of black men and women abroad. But I began to see the way in which immunity was also used uh, to talk about the sacrifice of African-American men and women in military service. And one of the things that you mentioned there uh, were these immune regimens. And so what are these? I think a lot of people may be vaguely familiar with, you know, the ideas that you were just talking about. Um, but they probably, if they are, they might think that that was, you know, something of, you know, the antebellum period that that didn't really carry on. But as you're showing, like, no, this has, you know, deep impact in American history and it continues forward. Right. Uh, well, the, the thing that for me is so, so fascinating about these regiments is that they were mobilized in uh, a period of time in which medical and scientific consensus on the vector of, of yellow fever in the United States uh, was, uh, was, was far from unanimous. Uh, and in fact, uh, I think that, that 
one of the things that that I struggled with was trying to understand um, how true uh, was this belief of black people being uh, seen as immune uh, um, uh, to uh, contagious diseases. And it's not until I believe 1901 that American researchers uh, confirm that yellow that yellow fever, the vector of yellow fever, uh, 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 was uh, uh, the mosquito. Uh, and so, in this this period, in some ways, from let's say 1898 to 1901, uh, in lieu of a uh, of of a true understanding of the pathology of yellow fever, scientists and military officials and and African American leaders. Um, they began t- to rely upon the myth of black people being immune. Uh, and that sense of immunity uh, uh, served multiple ends uh, for uh, military uh, um, um, officials. Uh, it meant that you had a class of persons uh, ready to do the work that many white uh, troops uh, refused to do. So you have cases in Cuba where there were white American troops who refused to work at yellow fevered camps because they thought that this was uh, a, a way of, of inviting death into their lives. Um, but you also had African-American leaders like Booker T. Washington and Namioka Curtis who felt that being able to show uh, their patriotism uh, um, by serving uh, in these perilous conditions would be one way in which uh, all of America would recognize uh, that that African Americans were full were, were citizens and deserved full citizen citizenship rights uh, in the country. Uh, and so this was, I would say that uh, that immune regiments uh, their their mobilization uh, was something that happened. Uh, in the spring of 1898. Uh, and there was lots of debates in white and black newspapers about the notion of immunity uh, and whether or not it, it was true. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, you had uh, white newspapers who really scoffed at, at the fact of this, uh, of the idea of immunity uh, um, um, being present um, in any Southern population uh, based upon uh, uh, the yellow fever outbreaks uh, having having not taken place uh, in certain counties uh, for for ten or twenty years, uh, but still, this was a moment in which African Americans felt as though that this is our chance to show the country that that we are citizens, uh, that we will fight on on our country's behalf, um, and they 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 did it. And I find it just, you know, really interesting because you have this sort of, you know, idea that, you know, that I think a lot of people are familiar with where, you know, you serve in the military and it gives you a sort of, you know, better claim on, you know, citizenship rights and everything like that. When you come from a marginalized group, that this has historically been a pathway to that marginalized groups use to you know claim better rights and they also have to in this case black people have to you know navigate this really you know quite frankly weird assumption that they are somehow immune from these deadly diseases 
Right. Um, and I think that that was hard to, to reckon with. Uh, and, and to see uh, the different sorts of, of Black organizations uh, that, that signed on to this belief uh, made, uh, it, it gave me pause. But I also had to realize that in so many ways, science, uh, uh, I think that the process-oriented notion of, of science uh, becomes clearer when we're, when we're not thinking about, let's say, our now um, uh, and looking back into the archive. Uh, and so in that moment in 1898, uh, when it really did seem as though that this was an opportunity that, that Black folks could, could jump uh, on uh, and, and to really uh, make good out of. This was something that I think that Black people felt somewhat comfortable in, in, uh, in signing up to do. Now, I will say that, that in terms of uh, Black women being seen as, as particularly immune to yellow fever, um, that was so fascinating to me because it relied on the idea of the, uh, of let's say, of the quote unquote mammy figure uh, um, on uh, plantations who at least uh, there uh, in the ar- the archives that, that I looked at uh, showed uh, histories where black women were seen, uh, black women on plantations. Uh, uh, if there was a plantation beset by yellow fever that they then became the people who took care of the entire plantation. Um, and so those ideas about black womanhood uh, were folded into the rationale uh, used to recruit black women uh, for their first uh, uh, international war um, as as immune nurses. And so, yeah, speaking about immune nurses, you know, what does their experience in this war, you know, tell us about not not just you know the black community and black women's sort of struggle uh, in the United States during this time period, but just about you know how you know, the gendered characteristics of race and medicine look during this period? That's a great question. I think that the experience of Black women uh, shows that, that, that Black womanhood, I think, has just been a, a, a constant resource um, uh, for, um, um, for forms of, of labor. And specifically, I would say, care labor in this sense. Uh, and so what I found fascinating uh, were news reports that, that showed that, the, that some of the women who served uh, in Cuba uh, had also served uh, as nurses during the Civil War. Uh, but they also had some of uh, uh, younger nurses who had been trained at segregated colored uh, nursing schools as well. And I think that what what occurred was that black women were cognizant of the way in which they were being caricatured uh, in the media uh, and treated by certain soldiers and doctors. And they were savvy enough to attempt to fracture the servile caricature and stereotypes of, of the mammy figure in speaking to journalists, uh, in talking about uh, uh, their service uh, and and demanding their rights. Uh, And so 
I, I think that we can look at long histories of the way in which black womanhood has been marshaled uh, for different projects of racial capitalism. And this was a history that, that I myself was unfamiliar with. And it, it felt important to spend lots of time uh, to articulate uh, the voices of these women uh, who had not been a part of any of the standard narratives of the Spanish-Cuban-American War. Yeah, I know for myself, you know, the, the little bit of the Spanish-Cuban-American War that, you know, I was exposed to, you know, in a high school, in college is, you know, typical sort of just, you know, one, it's just like kind of glossed over because it's seen as such a short war. Uh, you definitely don't learn about black people in general, and you definitely don't learn about black women's role in the war. Um, you don't. And um, and I think that what was so frustrating uh, to to see in the literature or let's say the some of the the primary sources was that even as black women were were uh, being praised by the black community for their service in this war, you also saw their immediate erasure. Uh, and so when they returned to uh, the U.S. Uh, after uh, their service, and their service, you know, it included, um, you know, everything uh, from uh, um, from treating uh, soldiers, uh, to really helping to bury the dead. Um, and, uh, and, and nurses themselves became sick. So again, this whole notion of, of immunity was, uh, was a really dangerous gambit, uh, a political gambit that, that many people took, uh, when they returned to the U S this is when, uh, uh, though they had in many ways changed through their service, the, the U S had not changed. Uh, at all. And so uh, even in terms of returning home, uh, they experienced uh, 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 racism uh, um, uh, in, uh, uh, and accommodations and, and public conveyances uh, returning to the South. Um, and, and this was, this was, was very, they were very angry. Uh, and, and you began to see uh, their anger in terms of as righteous, uh, as, righteous as, as, as veterans who had been spurned. Uh, and that was something that uh, I wanted to to contend with that emotion, especially because, again, this was something that I had never been taught. Um, uh, there were uh, uh, footnotes that referred to uh, uh, these workers. And I, and I have to thank those scholars uh, who who helped me. Uh, uh, Think, think through these ideas um, and to spend a bit more time with them. Speaking of things that we don't usually learn about, um, one of the people that you focus on is a man named Charles Young. And the what I, what I would consider very interesting um, documents that he leaves behind that you're able to reconstruct, you know, his views around black military service and everything um, during this time period. And so who is Charles Young and what are the sources that you were able to find that deal with him and are from him? Charles Young is, is so fascinating. And in so many ways, it's, um, you know, I, 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 I say, I think of Charles Young 
Um, and I think of General Colin Powell, uh, just in terms of the kind of impact that Young had uh, um, in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. Charles Young was uh, the son of an enslaved black folks, uh, and he was uh, the third uh, African-American uh, to uh, go to West Point. Uh, and uh, he became, during his, his lifetime, uh, the highest-ranking African-American uh, uh, military officer. Now, um, he, and he reached uh, the rank of, of colonel, uh, but he was controversially uh, retired on the eve of World War I, um, uh, supposedly because of a heart condition. Uh, but, uh, it became really clear in terms of, uh, the work that I studied, uh, um, and some of the other, uh, documents that, that I found that, that there was fear, uh, from the, the military hierarchy that, that an African American man, um, um, could not, uh, uh, or should not ever, uh, be seen as, uh, um, as a highest ranking, uh, uh, rank. In, in the army. So, so he, uh, was retired at Colonel, um, and was not able to, uh, um, um, become general. Now, this was something that really, uh, hurt him, uh, because throughout his life, he really believed that he was fighting both for race and for country. And he spent, uh, the bulk of his military career trying to reconcile uh, uh, these two strivings. Um, and, uh, he, uh, uh, was also, uh, a brilliant man in so many ways. Uh, uh, he spoke a number of languages. Um, uh, so on top of being a polyglot, he was a cartographer. Uh, he was a musician, uh, and he was a playwright. Um, and, there are a number uh, his archive i think is is something that i stumbled upon um uh and i didn't know that i would spend so much time thinking about his life but in terms of his striving uh, of of wanting to be the first general uh and uh or first african american general in the us army uh he had an idol uh who he spent a lot of time uh thinking about uh and this was uh, Toussaint Louverture, um, famous uh, 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 General uh, Louverture from the Haitian Revolution. So as Young was going through his career, uh, he had a wonderful assignment uh, 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 as the first military attache uh, or, or American military attache in Haiti. Uh, and this was this was a wonderful assignment uh, for him because he turned his time in Haiti into a kind of a research sabbatical. And uh, while there, he began to write uh, a, a five-act play about the Haitian Revolution, focusing upon uh, uh, L'Overture. Uh, and so this was a play that he began writing in around 1905. Um, and he didn't finish the play until 1920 when he was stationed in Liberia. Uh, now, the 19 version version uh, of that play has been lost to history. Hopefully someone can find it at some point. Uh, but the version that we have access to uh, is from 1910. 
And so reading that uh, really sort of uh, kind of amazing uh, 160-page uh, uh, document uh, says as much about his uh, interpretation of the Haitian Revolution as it does about Young himself. And it shows that, that uh, it, in many ways, it's a tragedy uh, in terms of, I mean, however, we, you know, we think about uh, um, the Haitian Revolution, uh, we know that, that Lobachor's uh, um, uh, being disappeared from Haiti uh, and, um, and brought to Europe uh, was, uh, you know, was a tragic end uh, for this amazing uh, fellow. Uh, and that's something that that Jung meditates upon uh, in his play. And in some ways, though this version we have from 1910 uh, is, uh, uh, I mean, it's an amazing version. Uh, um, I wish I had access to the one uh, that he wrote in 1920. But the 1910 version, in some ways, offers a kind of prophetic memoir uh, because it helps to understand uh, um, the betrayal that Jung felt uh, um, uh, by not being allowed uh, to become a, uh, a general in the U.S. Army and, and serving in, in World War One, which, of course, he would have been extremely useful because uh, uh, he uh, spoke German and French, right? Uh, and he, so, but I, I would say one of the other parallels that I think is very helpful about about uh, his narrative uh, and Lovatures is that he is also in some ways, at least I argue that he was exiled uh, to Liberia uh, uh, and in many ways sent to Liberia uh, uh, to die uh, uh, because once he had been uh, retired or, or forcibly retired by, by the U.S. military, uh, he became much more radical uh, and active. And one of his best friends uh, 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 during this time uh, was W.E.B. Du Bois. And their relationship to me is so fascinating. They, they met uh, at Wilberforce University um, um, in many ways at the beginning of both of their, their careers uh, and remained fast friends. Um, and uh, this, the, the other aspect of, of the tragic nature of, of Jung's life uh, is that I believe that uh, that Du the, the Bois saw him as 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 a figure besotted by double consciousness. Uh, that everything he did in order to prove himself uh, worthy uh, uh, to be a an officer uh, um, uh, was something that had his own identity. Uh, his own identity was always being judged by by white uh, by white people. And I think that that was a, a difficult uh, um, aspect of the relationship that was never quite reconciled. Um, so, but I think that Du Bois and Young together are just really amazing men uh, um, and uh, to consider uh, uh, at, at that period of time. And I know as someone who is, you know, I'm an, I'm an early American, so really I study, you know, the late 18th and early 19th century. And so sort of reading that, you know, this person who is, you know, as you said, you know, the most successful black soldier in the military during this time period. And then, you know, he basically gets ousted by the military because they don't want someone who's going to keep rising in the ranks and everything like that. And then, as you said, he sort of is 
exiled to Liberia. And for me, you know, there's, you know, the old saying that, you know, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme um, in terms of, you know, this high ranking, successful um, black military uh, worker who is, you know, sort of comparing himself to Toussaint Louverture, um, spends time in Haiti and everything like that. And then ends up going to, you know, a country that is, was created by the American colonization society in order to get rid of slavery and to prop up slavery at the same time. I I mean, this is, I mean, these are, this is why I, I, I'm sort of, I'm I'm resistant to hero worship, right? It's like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm attracted to, uh, uh, fascinating, uh, subjects. And I love personally, um, uh, the conflict I have in trying to understand young, um, that young is someone who was a African American military imperialist, um, at his heart. And yet I also believe that, uh, his choice to, to go to Haiti at, at, um, the last two years of, of his life, a choice that the boys was like, don't do it. He's like, they're, they're going there to kill you. D- you know, come on. But he also had uh, the sense of duty that I think in some ways overshadows his own agency. I believe that he decided to spend the rest of his life uh, in Liberia um, as a military imperialist because he refused to live uh, the rest of his life uh, um, um, under uh, um, the American veil. Uh, and so he had to reconcile um, his own position uh, as a African-American, um, as a soldier, as a military imperialist, and I would say as a, as a nascent uh, black nationalist, because I think that that is what I, um, I discovered through uh, the play uh, uh, about the Haitian Revolution, that, that, that the play to me is this fascinating text that is so radical, uh, both in terms of everything that we know about Charles Young, but even what we know about, about plays written during uh, that period. I mean, there's a period, there's a moment in which uh, in the play that, that Louverture uh, is critiquing someone who is going to use uh, the N-word to describe him. Uh, and and then and, and the person stops. But then Lobatour, you know, says through Young's hand, he's like, you know what, listen, you know, you can say that word. In, in fact, that's a term, you know, that that we're reclaiming, that, you know, uh, that there is no shame around that term. Um, and 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 if and if you yourself, and I think he was talking to someone of mixed blood, you know, if you yourself, you know, you know, weren't infected with 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 white blood, you know, you yourself would, you know, would be able to claim th- this term uh, as yours uh, as well. And so I really love the fact that that Jung was able to use theater to stage ideas that publicly uh, he had never raised um, until towards the end of his life. And so though I think that uh, both the uh, Louverture play was a tragedy and in some ways uh, we might see uh, Jung's uh, a life as a tragedy. And I think that's the way that many people normally read Young. I resist that. Uh, I, I resist that because I like him as a complicated figure because I think that, that honestly, anyone who serves in the U.S. military 
uh, as a person of color, you know, as 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 unrepresented minority, uh, has to deal with this conflict of what it means to serve empire. Uh, what does it mean to be uh, an imperialist but and subaltern at the same time? Uh, and so, I I love the fact that uh, that that uh, that I can't recover young cleanly. Yeah, I mean, I, to me, the whole I mean. I don't know what you're working on next, but I almost feel like there needs to be a full length biography of this. I don't I don't know. It's just it's such an interesting topic. It's it's pretty. I mean, it is fascinating. I mean, um, I um, one of the things I, I want to work on is actually getting that play back into the uh, um, um, uh, back and in, back into the public. I mean, what shocked me is the fact that this play and I understand scholars sometimes were like, you know, no one's ever seen this. Um, and that wasn't my approach to this. I, in fact, I wanted to see all the secondary literature on this play, but I have discovered myself that the African-American military service, there is, an, a, there is a, a particular standard narrative of how we, we think about it. And it, doesn't, it hasn't really moved much farther than that. So from what I can tell, other than uh, two of his biographers mentioning this play, it's a play that has never been uh, been placed uh, uh, within a kind of, uh, you know, African-American literary discourse. Um, and I would love uh, other uh, scholars to to think about this this play and to think about uh, the contradictions and the possibilities of African-American military imperialism. And so, you know, going forward in terms of, you know, the other things that you discuss in the book, one of the things that you look at um, is the sort of competing visions between, you know, the black community and the military in, in particular about, you know, venereal diseases and, you know, a black infected body. And so what is going on there? Well, this is where uh, I'd say the other term, which... Uh, 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 which which we mentioned earlier, contagion comes in, in, into into play. Uh, so we have this notion of the immune body, uh, which is useful for for American imperial interests abroad. So we see uh, black soldiers used not only in Cuba but Puerto Rico and the Philippines. Uh, we go through World uh, when we get to World War One. Um, World War France is a moment in which uh, you have. Uh, American officers, uh, some who were actually were, were civilians, who, who wanted to find a way to bring their interests and concerns uh, into a, a, a military uh, lens. And so uh, you have two doctors uh, who were u- urologists uh, from Johns Hopkins University, um, David Walker and Hugh Hampton Young. Hugh Hampton Young, I think, is important because to this day, He's understood as the father of modern American urology. So they believe that in order for uh, the U.S. to be successful during World War I, especially in France, that there needed to be a, a war fought against uh, venereal diseases and infections. Uh, so in order to do this, uh, uh, Hampton Young uh, used a technique that uh, was popularized uh, by uh, New Zealand uh, officers, and this was known as chemical prophylaxis. Chemical prophylaxis, I think, is an interesting 
procedure uh, because folks who work uh, in health and medicine and sexuality today are probably familiar with forms of pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, around HIV and AIDS, right? Um, but this notion of prophylaxis has a much longer history. And chemical prophylaxis was something that if you as a soldier uh, uh, had gone and um, and had sex uh, with a woman, and again, the presumption is that that you're having sex with a woman and that the woman you're having sex with is a prostitute, that there's a good chance that you would be infected uh, by some kind of disease or infection. So chemical prophylaxis involved uh, uh, taking uh, after uh, your, uh, uh, let's say, your sexual um, activity, coming back to the base uh, and then uh, getting uh, a pro-treatment, uh, a prophylactic treatment, which involved silver compounds uh, being injected into the urethra and held for around five minutes before letting it pass. Then after that, you were supposed to take a, a, a mercury chloride uh, and a, as a kind of a salve uh, and rub that uh, uh, around the genitalia, uh, uh, genital area for uh, th- three more minutes. So that was promoted uh, um, during the time uh, of the war as the U.S. military's greatest advance uh, in treating venereal disease and infections. Now, it was clear that this process was a painful process. And Hugh Hampton Young himself was, was very clear that, that he did not uh, approve of African-American soldiers uh, or officers uh, have any kind of sexual or romantic relations with French women, again, presumably white French women. Uh, and so for particular soldiers uh, that uh, were working in, uh, on the docks of France, and in, in fact, what is fascinating is that the image on the cover of my book, uh, it's a sort of French propaganda p- poster um, um, in support of African-American uh, dock workers uh, working on Saint-Nazaire, uh, docks, right? And so, so these are the figures that he, in fact, is concerned about the dock workers uh, leaving uh, uh, work and then uh, going to uh, uh, brothels and having sex with, uh, with, with white women. So the idea was that whenever they left the base and they came back on, they actually had to endure this treatment, uh, which was very painful. Uh, and this is where the idea of contagion uh, um, pops up in my analysis in the sense of the way in which uh, black uh, men, and in this case, it's mostly uh, my, the narrative moves almost uh, exclusively to talk about black masculinity. But it's a moment in which black men were seen as contagious bodies that needed to be surveilled and regulated. Um, and their bodies needed to be tortured in many ways uh, to make them remember, uh, make them feel uh, what their minds could not be expected to remember. Uh, and so this idea of the contagious body and the contagious venereal body was something that was part of World War I, and it, it, it was a part of uh, uh, many of those, uh, those officers, once they left uh, um, um, uh, the military, uh, they helped to institutionalize it into uh, popular American uh, public health discourse. And so speaking about World War I, um, how does this sort of 
vision of U.S. wars and black military service change, you know, by the time and throughout and after World War One inside of the black community? Because as you said, you know, with the Spanish-Cuban-American War, there's largely this belief that, that, like we said, a lot of people are familiar with that, you know, you see military service as being an avenue towards having greater claims on rights. And it doesn't mean that it's not a sort of complicated process, but there's, you know, widespread, you know, support for these, you know, U.S. imperial visions and stuff like that. But as you point out, by the time we get to World War One and afterwards, the things have sort of radically changed. And so what's going on there? So at this moment is when you begin to see, uh, and it feels very contemporary to me in terms of uh, debates happening between, let's say, you know, uh, uh, older uh, activists uh, like like the boys uh, and some of the uh, the let's say the younger activists uh, who said who basically say that listen you know so many people have attempted to use military service in order to bring uh, greater rights to the African American community and it just it simply does not work you know why are we participating uh, in the domination of people uh, not you know uh, globally right but once we move to World War II it, it definitely becomes a much more of, of a global conversation. And so there, uh, there's lots of critiques uh, uh, that are happening uh, and, and resistance movements that are occurring. But you also still, you have, and for me, I think that this discourse, it's a very healthy discourse. It was it's in terms of healthy, in terms of seeing uh, 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 the kind of debates that were happening within the African-American community. Um, and that there seemed to be a way in which, regardless of what you felt, whether or not African Americans should serve in the military uh, or uh, they should not, it was clear that that they were continued. Uh, 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 it was clear that they were still being used, uh, and and so in this moment, uh, I think black Black Americans had to figure out uh, another relationship to. The U.S. military, and I think uh, part of of what they discovered is that though life overseas, uh, you still often had to contend with white surveillance. There are also moments of possibility, uh, and and I think that some of this possibility was was actualized in sexual relationships uh, with foreign people. Um, but in some of it was just, uh, but, but sex wasn't the only mode in which I think people began to find a different possibility. And again, so similar to the choice that Charles Young made to exile himself in Liberia at the end of his life, I think that African-American soldiers who began to see life outside of the United States as offering uh, a new way of being. Uh, uh, that uh, that they could see themselves as both desiring and desired subjects. That itself helped to produce uh, a, a new uh, global consciousness. And so especially when we begin to look at World War II, when some of the same forms of, of surveillance were impacting Black life uh, medically, that, that they moved on from chemical prophylaxis and uh, and. Uh, the military moved on and began to use sulfa drugs, so drugs that you could take orally uh, in order to 
um, 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 take care of, of STIs and STDs. Um, so those forms of surveillance still existed, but you also had the opportunities uh, produced just through global contact. Uh, so seeing black soldiers uh, in West Africa, uh, seeing black soldiers in Iran, seeing black soldiers, especially in Germany, uh, created, in, in my view, uh, the, the basis for the idea that military service uh, um, um, and serving abroad was like a breath of freedom for American GIs or African-American GIs. Um, and that's something that I believe that we still live in the, uh, in the wake of those, uh, that idea. And, and the least I can say that that is some of the history that I, I found myself and my family uh, um, um, uh, being, uh, being, being heir to. Uh, the idea that, that there was another way of living outside of the United States. And I guess the final point I would make about that is that I think that the book itself um, as a history, but also as, as, as a history with a kind of theoretical foundation, really is attempting to just make clear that there is, in fact, a long history of, of or a genealogy of black military thought. Uh, and I think that it's important for scholars, uh, thinkers today to take that seriously. Uh, so at least, so, you know, moving from 1898 uh, uh, to uh, our contemporary moment, I think it's very helpful for us to think about uh, the, the contradictions implied uh, in African-Americans serving a country that hasn't always had, uh, had their interests uh, at heart. And so, you know, before we let you go, you know, once again, we have this great book in front of us, and I encourage our listeners to become readers and go pick it up. Once again, it's Contagions of Empire, Scientific Racism, Sexuality, and Black Military Workers Abroad, 1898 to 1948. And so we have this in front of us right now, and I know you said something about wanting to get uh, Young's play back into the discourse, but what else might we expect from you in the future what might you be working on now? And I know this just came out. So if you want to look at me and tell me I'm taking a much needed break, <laughs> that is completely okay. Uh, there are no breaks. Uh, so what I will say is that, uh, you know, you always want to shove everything into, uh, into your, your first book. And uh, as someone who is a scholar of, of LGBT studies, um, I was personally frustrated that a lot of my chapters that involve uh, uh, with uh, African American, uh, lesbian, and gay service members uh, were not a part of this volume. But I actually I received lots of um, uh, feedback from uh, my readers who said, you know, we understand that you want all this, but in fact that's a separate project. And I really do begin to I've understood it now as as a new project. Um, and looking at the end of World War II as a moment in which at the end of World War II. Uh, it became clear that African-American military workers uh, were in some ways being seen as craftsmen now. That, so they had moved from laborers to craftsmen. Uh, didn't mean, doesn't mean that, you know, the more African-Americans uh, would be promoted as officers as we see today. But it, it did mean that African-Americans could actually uh, look to the military uh, as a career. At that, at that period, you also have the U.S. military beginning to 
patrol and surveil sexual difference. Uh, and so uh, during World War II, while there, there were some um, gay and lesbians, you know, who were dismissed from the military service uh, um, because of their sexuality or just the, the fear of, of their gender difference, uh, you begin to see uh, a history uh, of, of African-Americans who today we would say are lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans. Uh, uh, we begin to see how they began to understand their, their time in the, in, in the U.S. military. So just to mention a couple of the, of, of, of the subjects for that, uh, I would say is that uh, um, I found um, what I believe to be the only gay uh, Tuskegee Airman uh, uh, who uh, has not, I'm not even sure that the person who uh, captured their oral history was aware of the significance. Because <laughs> uh, it was an oral history uh, about about uh, um, gays and lesbians uh, in the in the military during World War II, Alan Barabay. But I'm not sure that Barabay was really aware of the fact that he, in fact, was speaking to someone who was the only gay uh, 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 a Tuskegee Airman on record. Uh, so I'm interested in thinking about him. But I've, I've also, for, for about a decade now, I've been doing a lot of work around the career of Perry Watkins, uh, who was an, uh, a gay African-American uh, service member uh, who was kicked out of the military uh, for being open and honest uh, about his sexuality, um, but after 14 years of service. Uh, and so um, in 1990, he uh, 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 received a victory in, in, in terms of being kicked out of the military uh, uh, for being gay. And so he received uh, back wages and, and uh, um, you know, everything that, that was due to him. Uh, and so I'm interested in, in looking at, let's say, uh, the end of uh, World War II to the, the present moment, but centering the voices of of, of queer uh, uh, service uh, uh, members of color, uh, and and the same way that I didn't expect to find, let's say, immunity and contagion as the terms that animate this first book. I'm hoping that though I do have a sense of 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 the aim of of, of the new project, I'm hopeful that. There will be other things that 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 I can't expect that will come out of the research. Well, that certainly sounds very interesting. I'm sure once that project's done, we'll have you right back onto the program. But in any case, thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you so much. It's been it's been wonderful. Uh, and uh, uh, be safe.